We're lucky to have with us today James Daniels, who's going to be our uh, guest uh, preacher. He's a, involved in a church plant in Chelsea, Alabama. Uh, Central Presbyterian Church is an active partner with him in, in trying to uh, bring the message of the Lord to those folks, and he's with us today to bring us the message. James Daniels. Thank you both. Appreciate it. I've got that mic on. I don't know if it's working. Testing. All right. Thank you. Time out for uh, technical difficulties, right? It's usually my difficulties, not the technology. So good to be here with you guys today. Um, I guess this makes uh, my third or fourth time to come preach here. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I'm right at home, uh, getting to know a few more people every time I come. So uh, thank you for your hospitality. Thanks again for your support uh, there in Chelsea. Uh, in a lot of ways, we are uh, experiencing the summer blues, just like a lot of churches. Um, if a church of this size, you know, is missing 20, 25 folks out on vacation, you know, numbers are down. If a church of 20, 25 has 20 or 25 people out, it's a little bit of a different story. And so uh, we're meeting together with people. We're gathering. Uh, we're going to start meeting for prayer uh, groups. I don't know if you heard it last time. We did get a facility. We got a facility that seats about 80 folks. And uh, we got a full kitchen and a deck, and we're getting that at no cost to our church. And so it's one of those things where God finally told me to stop pushing, stop manipulating, let him do a little bit of work for a while. His work's a lot better than mine. So uh, pray for me as I'm trusting in him more. It's the uh, most exciting thing I've ever done, getting the church off the ground there in Chelsea. Uh, but it's the scariest thing I've ever been a part of. And it's uh, taught me a lot about faith in God. It's taught me a lot to look redemptively at my the, the world around me and my my neighborhood in a, in a uniquely different way. So, uh, but I thank you for your support and y'all been such great partners to us as we've worked um, in in planning that church. So thank you for that. Uh, today we're going to be reading from uh, Luke chapter ten. We're going to start in verse twenty five. Luke ten, verse twenty five. We're going to talk about the idea of uh, who is my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? If you're able to stand, if you'll please stand with me for the reading of the word. Luke 10, 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And all your mind in your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, being the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn to take care and, to, uh, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. And he gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. 
Whatever else you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that uh, I don't have to make up uh, words to say here. You've done such a marvelous job communicating exactly what you would call us to in your word. And Lord, help us to have eyes to uh, see, ears to hear, and soft hearts uh, as we enter into this passage. Uh, and, and help us to see what you may be through your spirit uh, guiding us to. And it's in your son that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so I'm 43 years old, uh, and in a lot of ways I love becoming, getting into my 40s. I'm getting over that youthful thing where I think I can do everything, and I've got to outprove everyone, and I'm in competition with every other guy in the room. And I'm not saying totally over it. I don't think guys ever totally get over that. But I'm getting old enough now where I'm comfortable in my own skin. I feel like I'm free and kind of understand myself a little better, free to do what God's called me to do, uh, a little bit more secure in my identity. So there's a lot of things I'm growing out of. There's a few things I'm growing out of that I don't like, like the waistline of my pants. Uh, that's getting harder and harder to maintain. Uh, but my, my wife has been talking to me for a while. My wife uh, is here. She's Larissa. Our daughter could not be here today. She's with my, my grandparents. And my, do- my wife is a fitness instructor. And she's always so kind to me about these things. When I put on a little weight, I always accuse her of shrinking my pants. Uh, but she didn't ever buy into that. So, uh, but, but she's always very gracious. This is what she says to me. She says, you know, I really don't care how you look. That's not what I'm concerned about. I just care that you're healthy. Uh, I want you to be around for you know, years to come, excuse me, for our daughter uh, to see our grandkids and and just as my husband. So I think that was a pretty kind way for her to to say, you need to get in better shape. And uh, so I've started exercising uh, over the last over six months now. And uh, I I realize this about myself. I love strength training. I love anything that does with weights. I've always loved that when when I used to play football in high school. I've always loved that aspect of it. But anything that has to do with cardio, any getting on a treadmill or running, I, I, I can't stand it. I don't know what it is about it. I do not enjoy that. My wife, uh, she's run some marathons. Uh, I'm just not a runner. Uh, so I'm, I believe some bodies are not built for running or even walking long distances. I think, matter of fact, I told someone the other day, I was like, I don't know how big a boy it would have to be and what he'd have to have in his hand to make me take off running. I just don't know what that would be. It'd have to be something that, very dangerous. But we, uh, and, and so one of the things I realized, and, and I forgot about this, I've always loved boxing. Uh, my brothers and I used to get boxing gloves for Christmas. That tells you a little bit about our upbringing uh, on the farm in Arkansas. Uh, my mom never said, don't fight, don't wrestle. She just said, take it outside. And so that was kind of our philosophy. I think it was a good philosophy for us. And, uh, but, and so uh, over the last few, few uh, months, I've been boxing. I've got a bag. I like punching a bag better because a bag doesn't punch back. And so that, that's been a, a, good, a good exercise for me. But, uh, but if you've halfway watched the news in the last month, you know that boxing, and I, I love watching boxing, boxing has lost a legend uh, over the last month uh, by the name of Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., also known as Muhammad Ali. Now, 
Muhammad Ali is one of those guys, he's a polarizing figure, right? Uh, you, you can't be neutral about Muhammad Ali or you just haven't, haven't seen him or heard him. Uh, I mean, immediately you're either going to like him or you're going to be irritated by him. And uh, so, but regardless of whether you like him or you don't like him, uh, you have to admire his talent, his passion, and uh, he was a world-class champion in boxer. There's no doubt about it. And uh, so, but I'd like to read you a, a few quotes by uh, Muhammad Ali. One uh, that you, he's most famous for, right? Uh, I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's the one that most people say. Um, and he, he's, always, uh, he's always an entertainer along with being a boxer. Here's another quote that he had. He said, I done wrestled an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. Handcuffed lightning. Thrown thunder in jail. Only last week I murdered a rock. Injured a stone and hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean I make medicine sick. So, so that's the kind of figure that entertaining. But, but there's also, uh, there's also a, a, another side to Muhammad Ali that he's not as famous for, people don't realize. Uh, one is that he, 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 the idea that he's, uh, he, he really cherished hard work. He said, uh, you know, he said, I hated every, every minute of my life as a, uh, that I had to train. But he said, suffer now and live like a champion. Another quote that he had was uh, on friendship. He said, friendship is not something you learn in school, but if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, then you really haven't learned anything. I like that one. Uh, Well, here's one final quote. He said, I made my share of mistakes along the way, but if I've changed even one life for the better, then I haven't lived in vain. That's interesting. Love him, dislike him, admire him, or try to ignore him. You can't admire. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that he's going to go down in the history of boxing as the greatest, right? And this idea of the greatest is fascinating because you see this in Scripture, uh, and, and especially during Jesus' public ministry, people f- trying to find out who is the greatest. I mean, the whole Jewish religion at the time that Jesus came, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes. That's one of the things they're trying to do. It's almost like a pecking order that they're working through. Jesus' own disciples, right? his own disciples were concerned about this. Right? Who's going to be the greatest? They even asked him, at one, Jesus, who's the greatest disciples? You know, can you imagine the look on Jesus' face? He's like, are y'all kidding me? Y'all, y'all are worried about this? You've got the Son of God before you, and you're trying to figure out who the greatest is? Right? Have you not listened to a word I've said? So, this idea of the greatest is kind of the context for the story today. One of the things, this, this, the story that we read today, the Good Samaritan, it's one, just like you, I've grown up probably hearing several times, and uh, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, a lot of times people were exposed to this idea of the Good Samaritan. But if you look at the story by itself and you don't really understand what Jesus is getting at and see the context of it, I think you missed the major point that Jesus is trying to make because this story is not be a Samaritan as much as it is Jesus answering a lawyer's question and really get to the root and the heart of what it's going to take for him to really love his neighbor as himself. And so the sermon title today is Who's Your Neighbor? And I'll make three points here. One is uh, the original question that we're going to see this asked by the lawyer, the religious leader here. There's going to be a second better question asked by Jesus and we'll get to that in a moment. And then there's going to be a third and ultimate question that I really want you to take note of that brings both of these together uh, that, that we're going to look at the end that we all should ask ourselves uh, as Jesus leads the lawyer through this. Uh, so to, to start it off, let's look uh, in the first point of the original question by the lawyer. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up, it says in verse 25, to put him to the test. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, being Jesus, what's written in the law? Have you read it? Now, this is a fascinating dialogue from the from the outset, and, and there's a couple points here that if you miss, you may not get all that's going on here. See, this guy is not your average Pharisee, because the Pharisees have come at him from the law over and over. Matter of fact, part of this is a leftover conversation where Jesus put a couple of Pharisees in their places uh, because they were coming up to him and they were doing that pecking order that we talked about. What is the greatest commandment? Because why did they want to know the greatest commandment? Because if I want to be the greatest, tell me the steps to being the greatest so I can get better standing uh, in relation to God and in favor of men and become the greatest in my own right as a religious leader. But this lawyer didn't start right here. See, the lawyers in the New Testament here, and I've heard people misrepresent this in different ways. The lawyers, yes, were lawyers in some ways that we think about it nowadays, where a lawyer in the courtroom, he, he would have jurisdiction. He would understand the judicial system and building cases and building uh, the, the logistics of a court of law. But he also was a, a master and expert in the Old Testament law as well. And it makes sense when you think about it because Jewish law in the Old Testament, Jewish law and, uh, and, as regard to God's law and, the, and society's law were one and the same. Nowadays, we, we, we blur the differences or we try to divorce the two, separation, church, and state, whatever people use to do that. But for the Jews, it's one and the same. So this lawyer is not only thinking the best lawyer you've ever seen in action, so he's not only good at that, but he also is a master of understanding the Old Testament law. And so he has a different uh, starting point here. And so, like a good lawyer, he starts with a question, right? You've heard of a leading question. That's what they do in the beginning. That's what lawyers do in the courtroom when they're examining a witness. Not just any question, right? He said, how do I get eternal life? Now, he's not asking, uh, and he's already heard conversation by the Pharisees. He's not saying which law is most important. He's not saying, tell me the steps. He's taking some of Jesus' own terms and saying, what, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says to the lawyer, the key to the answer to your question is really going to depend on how you view the law. And he basically says this, if you look at it, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus is basically saying this, you're asking me, you're the lawyer, what does the law say? Why are you asking me? And so uh, you would think there that the lawyer would come up with, well, I, I think this. And he says, in verse 27, the lawyer says this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's heard this before. This was Jesus' answer a little bit a while ago when a Pharisee asked him, what's the greatest commandment of them all? Wanting to try to obey that or try to put himself in a better position. The lawyer's taking Jesus' own answer, right? This guy's slick. He's good. And he's already run scenarios. And you've seen this on the old uh, you know, shows like Perry Mason or Matlock or some of the uh, later shows, Law and Order, court, court cases that you've seen on TV, uh, where they'll take something uh, and they'll ask a bunch of questions, and then they say, well, you know, on May the 5th, 1974, you said in the testimony, blah, 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 trying to trip them up, right? We see that all the time. This lawyer's doing the same thing. 
He answers the question of how do you view the law with Jesus' answer of what he told another Pharisee. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. What's the heart? He said, you know the answers already. You're the lawyer. You know the law. I just asked you what the greatest commandment is. You answered rightly. What's the problem? But the lawyer is making sure that he doesn't get tripped up. See, he's running these scenarios. He knows how it's going to work here. And he said to him uh, in, in verse 29, But he, being the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now he's brought him back to really the question. He's asking question. tell me who my neighbor is, and I'll tell you what I've done in relation to that person, and now I'm, I'm the... I've done everything I need to do. Jesus is trying to strip away that economy of that checklist and say, no, no, you're not getting it. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. If you understand Christianity and what it means to be a follower of me, uh, the Son of God, and to understand what Christianity was about from start to finish, you've got to do away with the checklist and understand the essence of the law is not what you do and what you don't do, but loving God and loving your neighbor. So this is a good question, but it has a bad intention. When he says, who is my neighbor? That's a great question, right? If you're saying, hey, who is my neighbor? I want to serve them. But his motive was off. Uh, I've been a teacher for about 20 years now. A lot of the, a lot of the teaching I've done have been uh, from 7th and 12th grade. And it, uh, I've taught in the last few years in middle school, 7th and, and 8th graders. And one of the things I know is there are good questions with bad intentions. Here's a, here's a perfect example of it. Right? All the time, and it usually comes right after I've assigned homework to the kids. They'll ask the question, why do we have to do this? Now, a why question is a good question, right? It's a question of purpose. If you really want to know why something, uh, or you're asking why questions, that's where you're going to get the ultimate meaning, right? You think that's why they're asking the question? No, that's not why they're asking the question. Same thing when, when a kid at home, uh, you're t- saying, hey, I need you to do the laundry, do this. Why do I have to do it? They're not really wanting to know why. They're trying to justify themselves in the feeling that I don't want to do it. The lawyer's doing the same thing here. He doesn't really, he's, he'll have a deep concern of saying, who is this neighbor? Who are my neighbors so I can go out and serve you more, God? All right. His is more along the line of, all right, tell me who my neighbor is, and I've probably already done what you think that, that I haven't done. Right? Because I'm a lawyer. I know the law. I follow the law all the time. So... Um, The first point is this, and the other points are not as long, but the first point was this. The first major question posed by the lawyer is, who is my neighbor? Now let's look at Jesus' answer, because he's about to push us to a different and better question of really what's going on here that we all have to ask ourselves. And y'all know the story. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, But but it's a surprise. He asks a question, and he wants a response, and Jesus just tells him a story. You ever have someone, and uh, I, I used to uh, be around this older, older gentleman, and I'd ask him a question like, you know, let me tell you a story. And I was like, oh, no, not again. You know, just answer the question. I don't want a parable. Uh, but Jesus tells him a story. He says there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among the robbers who strip him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and he saw him pass on the other side. A Levite came to the same place, saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, right, uh, as he journeyed, came there, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn and took care of him. Next day he took out two denarii, which is like 
uh, two days' worth of wages, right? Uh, gave it to the innkeeper and saying, take care of him. Whatever else you spend, I'm going to repay you when I come back. Taking as much care as you could possibly of a person. And then Jesus poses the, the question, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. This was very hard for the lawyer because the one who showed the guy mercy was a Samaritan, right? When you think about any racial hatred that you've seen in the history of the world, including America, the Jews were as bad or worse about that in relation to the Samaritans. They would walk, it would be like this, it would be like saying, I hate people from Birmingham so, I despise them so much that I'm going to drive to, I would drive to Talladega and then back to Montgomery before I would go through Birmingham, right? And so uh, this is the idea. Samaritan was between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho. That's why they were traveling down through there. But, but they would walk, and they weren't driving. That would be, you know, that, that would be, what, 45 minutes out of our way. They're walking. So sometimes it would, be, it would be a day out of the way just not to walk through Samaritan. Like, the Samaritans were uh, a mix here between uh, the Jews and the and Gentiles and the Greeks. And to the Jews, they represented people that would not follow the law of God and intermarried with the pagans. And they were unclean to the Jews. You understand what unclean means. There's another category of people in the Bible that they would say were unclean. That was the lepers. They're putting it in the same category that they would a leper as far as the way they interacted. This is why it's so controversial if you have Jesus... When he met the Samaritan woman at the well, remember that story? And he drank. It wasn't, it wasn't just scandalous that he was seen in public uh, talking to a woman in that way uh, to them because they, because they didn't dignify women in, the, in society at the time. That was not only the scandal. The scandal was he was drinking after a Samaritan who had been deemed unclean. That would be like to the Jews drinking after a leper. That's what Jesus was doing. This is the hatred that you see with the Samaritans. And so Jesus basically talking to the lawyer, who was the neighbor? And the lawyer basically having to say, the Samaritan, <laughs> right? He didn't say that. He said, he who showed him mercy, so he wouldn't have to say Samaritan because he's a good lawyer, right? Now, um, so looking at, at this uh, narrative here brings us to the, the second point. We, we know that with the, with the, we have two religious leaders who walk up, they see a man half dead in the ditch, and they won't touch him, and they go on the other side of the road. Now, the man in the ditch, that's not a Samaritan. That's not an unclean uh, person that we're talking about. It's a guy that was traveling from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. Most likely it was a Jew in the ditch. As the religious leaders walked by, they just didn't want to mess with it. It was just too big of a... It was, they had biz, more stuff. It was going to mess up their agenda. They didn't want to do that. Right? They didn't want to have to get down there. They had more religious things to do. Right? They were a little bit above that guy that, who fell into trouble. It's a, it's a, it looks like a bad situation there. It doesn't look safe. I'm going to go on the other side of the road. It's a lot easier. Oh, I'm glad that's over. Keep walking, right? Now, when Jesus talks about this, I used to think that the main point of the story was to be a good neighbor, you need to do what the Samaritan has done, which is really not the point because he's not saying your neighbor is the guy in the ditch here, is he? You ever notice that? He's not saying the guy in the ditch is your neighbor and you should help him. He said the Samaritan is the neighbor. He's the one that exhibiting neighborly qualities. And you begin to realize what Jesus is getting at is being a neighbor is not as wrapped up with what you do as much as who you are. 
That's a huge point in this story. So the first question asked by the lawyer was, who is my neighbor? The second question that we have here of Jesus saying, before I can tell you who your neighbor is, let's talk about who you are. The issue is not looking around and saying, where do I serve or who should I serve or, or getting bogged down in logistics. The problem is most of the time when you have an individual or a church or any place in, 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 in any community that's not interacting with the neighbors and not reaching and doing ministry in the way that we should and we're called to do, loving our neighbor as ourselves, it's not a problem that we don't have opportunities. It's not a problem that we don't even see opportunities. The problem is it starts with here, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. Now, when, uh, in a book called What Jesus Demands by John Piper, some of you guys may know John Piper, uh, he's a pastor up in Minneapolis, he said that when we are done trying to establish, is this my neighbor, the decisive issue is, what kind of neighbor am I? Another way of asking the question uh, is uh, by John Parnell, uh, who's also another uh, a pastor, he's a lead pastor of a church called uh, City's Church, up north, and he says it this way: Are we going to be caught up? Are we going to be like the Samaritan and just give help when help is needed, whatever that looks like? Or are we going to be caught up in questions about who we're supposed to help, and when, and where, and how, and what if it makes me late for Sunday school? I didn't say that. That, that was the quote with the pastor. Parnell goes on to say this, uh, the pastor, he says, what grounds that we think about our neighbors is actually our identity, not theirs. What matters first is that who we are. Now, at the end here when Jesus says to him, who is the neighbor? The guy said the one that showed him mercy, which was a Samaritan in this case. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So this brings in our two questions together and our final question here. The lawyer comes in with a, a good question, bad intention, but it's a, a, a good question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus comes back and says, before you can answer that, you've got to figure out who you are. This is going to be contingent upon who you are. The final question where it brings it all together is this, and this is the one that I'm asking of myself and asking of us today. How can I love, how do I love my neighbor? is really the root cause. You notice how do I, not who is my neighbor, but how do I, who am I, and how do I love my neighbor? Now, as, you, as I said before, can you imagine the look on the face of the lawyer had to admit the, the, the Samaritan was his neighbor? Can you imagine what's going on in his mind and heart? And this is what Jesus has done. The thing the lawyer tried to do, entrapment, right, with the leading question, kind of bring him around and, 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 and go through all the scenarios, try to argue with Jesus. Jesus brings it back around to the lawyer, and he's forced, right? He's forced to grapple with something here when he was trying to grapple with something here. So here's the, really the final thought. Again and again, being a Christ follower means that we start with understanding what it means for our identity to be in Christ, and only then can we love our neighbor. When the lawyer summarizes... When the lawyer summarizes the law as loving your God with all your heart and soul and mind, he was trying to find a checklist still, a checklist of what to do and what to don't in regard to my neighbor. Instead of finding a checklist of something to make him feel better about himself or a checklist of something to say, if I do this, then I've done my religious duty, what the lawyer should have realized when Jesus says, 
love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, he should have had a sinking feeling that I can't do that. When Jesus tells us, love the Lord with all your being and your neighbor and yourself, you should immediately know, I can't do that. I can't do that. You see the difference? One establishes a checklist of duty. The other begins to realize that I can't do this on my own. Right? Now, see, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, greatest commandment, that we, the reason we can't do it is because we're broken. Right? We're broken. We are sinners. We ultimately fail on our own. We can't love God or others the way that God is calling us to do without Christ's help. See, we are the neighbors in need. When you forget that you are and you were the neighbor in need, it begins to blur the lines of how you feel about other people. This is why Christ came and died on the cross, because we're all in need of help and grace and healing. When we trust on Christ's ability, when we trust on Christ's ability to do it right, love us, love others, and really understand that we were and are as worse off as anyone else we encounter, that's when it's going to change our perspective of the way we view those around us. And we do it all the time. And, and, and in suburban America, uh, especially in some of the demographics in which a lot of us live, it's easy to do that we look at the people downtown or people in certain parts of town and we begin to say, because of certain decisions I made, I'm better off than they are. Who do you think God gave you the grace to make that decision? You didn't have it in you. God gave you the grace to make those decisions. If you've done some things right, then praise God. Don't come back and say, I'm better because I've made these decisions. And if they would have made the decisions that I did, they wouldn't be as good as me. You would have been as bad off of them without the grace of God. If you can't look at the people around you, no matter your sins, their situation, uh, the culture, the surrounding lifestyles, if you can't look at them and see yourself in their, your, their eyes, then you're missing the point of, of grace in the gospel. And you're never going to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. The addict, the prostitute, the thug... Uh, the drug dealer, those in bondage to certain perversions that sometimes we think, I would never be capable of that. We're capable of that. And that's you and that's me without the grace of God. As bad off as anybody is in this whole city, in this whole United States. You, you can't look at them and say, without the grace of God, that would be me. If you're not there yet, then you don't need to worry about your neighbor, right? There's some coming to Jesus that you need to do in your own soul. Now, but, as we begin to grapple with this truth, and as y'all begin to grapple with it here uh, in Huntsville area, and I grapple with it in, in Chelsea, and we're all uh, grappling with this, and grace becomes such a part of our lives where we see our brokenness, and there's not a hierarchy between the churchgoers and the non-churchgoers or the, or the people that are addicted and the people that are not addicted, but it's a leveling playing field where we all realize we're in the same boat without the grace of God. When we do that, and we understand God's grace, and what he did through Christ, when we were against him, broken, neighbors, uh, sinners, outcasts, then and only then can we be able to view others rightly and have the eyes to see the opportunities that are all around us every day. And only then will we have uh, a love and a desire and a compassion and ultimately the ability to love our neighbor and our neighborhoods well. And when we do that, 
it will transform the cities around us. It will transform your neighborhood. It will transform your neighbors because it transformed us. We know the power of that, and we know the power in our own life. When God did that work, we are the neighbor, right? We are the outcast and the sinner, and by the grace of God, he's done that for us, and that's the message that we proclaim, and when we do, we're going to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, you have made it possible when we really know that loving you with all our being and loving our neighbor and ourselves is impossible. Thank you for that. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the price he paid. Thank you that when we were outcast, when we really didn't have anything to do with you, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you, by your grace, awoke us. Lord, and you paid a price. Help us to remember that about ourselves, and may that just flow and pour out of our lives and pour out of this church. Thank you for the church here. Thank you for all the ministries they're currently doing. Thank you for the encouragement they are to me, uh, and may you uh, just through the, uh, your son bless them. It's his, his name I pray. Amen.